Let's join together in prayer. We thank you, our gracious Heavenly Father, for the record of the scriptures which continue to teach us and lead us with things that we should know, especially when it comes to things that lead us and point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the King, the ultimate King, the King of Kings. And we pray that as we launch into this book of One Kings, that we would see him prefigured for us, but also see him as he is. So we ask this and pray that your blessing will be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was way, way back in 2018 that we left off a rather long series on, of studies in the book of 2 Samuel that told us of the rise and the fall of David, king over Israel and Judah, the ancestor and the type of the king who was to come, Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah and Israel's true king. And with that connection in mind, I want to launch out this morning into this next series and the next book of 1 Kings, which moves us from the reign of David to the reign of Solomon and tells us of the dizzying heights and the terrible, awful lows that the people of God reached under his reign and rule. Now, this book we call 1 Kings covers a span of about 400 years. And as its title suggests... The book tells us of the kings of Israel and Judah. The good, which were few in number, and the bad, which were abundant. Now you might think from the outset that the mere mention of the subject of kings was something you had to endure in school. And it was terribly boring. But let me assure you that this book is definitely not anything like a dry and dusty history lecture. In fact, the very opposite is the case. Not only are we given in this book a very succinct account of the time period it covers, but the issues covered are of supreme importance. Eventually, when we see Solomon taking the crown. See, after a fairly promising beginning, Solomon, as you will know, became a man of the world. At the outset, seemingly full of wisdom, but at the end, anything but wise or godly, falling prey to the very modern sins of money, sex, compromise and power. And so there are many, many lessons to learn from the life of Solomon. And as we come to these opening verses of chapter 1, I hope you can see that king-making or declaring yourself king, uh, self-enthronement, pride and self-exaltation are the themes that meet us from the outset. They're head-on. And we should also note that this is a watershed moment in the history of God's people and so the history of our salvation. 
When David became king, he fulfilled an important prophecy given to Judah by Jacob, which gave some more substance, some more flesh to God's promise way back in Genesis 3.15 of the promised deliverer who would be born of a woman and destroy Satan and all his works. With David rising to kingship, things never looked better in Israel. The Philistines and the other surrounding nations were subdued and the stage was set for the arrival of this promised one that God promised to David, the one who would sit on the throne forever and ever, as we just sang, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The one who would build the temple in which God himself would dwell. And so our eyes are turned to the question, with David dying, who will be king? Will the longed-for, promised king come and be revealed in the book that's called Kings? Or if not, maybe in the second book that's called Kings? Or maybe not at all? Yes, the sad truth is that the books of 1 and 2 Kings are an ugly parade, with a few exceptions, of more sinful, flawed men who fail. Men who will only increase our desire that God would send the true king, who will rule righteously and bring in God's kingdom. But the book doesn't tell us of that upward spiral. It tells us of a downward spiral. Ending with the people of God, exiled, far away from their land, and the succession of kings that we see are flawed and sinful men. In the opening verses, which we've looked at this morning, we are brought face to face with the pride of Adonijah. Just one example of many that will follow. Two things to note. First, let's consider the outgoing king's decline in verses 1 to 5. The scene is set for us in the opening five verses with the declining state of King David. As verse 1 says, Now King David was old and advanced in years, And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Sharks follow blood in the water. And lions, when hunting, instinctively fix on the vulnerable and sick. And in the same vein, Adonijah's attempt to seize the throne came about when his father's days were numbered. David, we are told, is old. He's unable to stay warm. No electric blankets in those days. And so a young woman wins a beauty contest and the prize of winning the beauty contest is sharing the bed of a dying old cold man. Great prize. Doesn't sound so great in that light, does it? Come and do this for your country and king. We want the most beautiful girl in the world, in, in the country, in the nation, to come and keep 
the king warm. He's dying. He's old. Now this is far, far from the picture of David that we've known, isn't it? We've heard so much about David that was strong and inspiring but also much about him that was weak and failing. And now it's the latter that dominates this picture of David as you see him on the screen. David's health is failing and he's also presented as one who's failed in another way. He's failed when it came to the succession plan. David knew that Solomon was to be king, but no move had been made to install him. We also see that David seemed to be ignorant of Adonijah's grab for the throne and had to be told about it, as we'll see in the next part of the chapter, revealing that he was not keeping up with the events in his own court. And then in verse 6, that this history of bad parenting from David, that is, bad parenting of his sons, has come back to bite him hard, as it did with Absalom in the previous book. Verse 6 tells us that David had never at any time displeased his son Adonijah by asking, why have you done thus and so? In other words, what are you doing? Never rebuked him. Never questioned him. There's a sad repeating pattern here in David's life. When Amnon, David's son, raped his own sister, David was passive and did nothing, provoking Absalom to take matters into his own hands and murder his brother. The text points out that the key thing that was missing was not verbal praise, it was not physical presence, it was not material possessions and opportunity, but it was the absence of discipline of his sons. And David appears to be weaker than Eli in this area, who at least verbally rebuked his sons who were abusing their office, though Eli did not remove them from office as he should have. No, David did not want, did not attempt to even confront or question or rebuke his son when he had been wrong. Perhaps it gives, it was these exact examples in mind why Solomon gives instruction about discipline in Proverbs 13 verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. David may have loved his son, but it did not take the form that his son needed, and that was discipline. Though the world might laugh and say, well, this is just child abuse dressed up, not to discipline is not to love, and will not lead to the word disciple, which is so close to the word discipline. Now let me balance all this by saying that David had been a remarkable man and king. He had known victory in many a battle. He had unified Israel and Judah under God. He had subdued under God all her enemies. He was a man of heart and a man of action. 
He wrote many of the songs that we know and sing in the Psalms. He was called a man after God's own heart. Yet he is merely a man. And that with many sins and failings. Compare him with the son of David. Compare him with Jesus. And you see this. A David was sinful whereas Jesus was sinless. A David was on the brink of death going into a tomb to stay whereas Jesus died and went to the tomb for the weekend. And so again we're confronted with the truth that even the best of men are still men at best. And if men, they will fail. Last year, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison preached a sermon about not trusting in governments and he was widely ridiculed. But what he said was right in the context of what he said. Men fail. Governments fail. The best of men fail. The best governments fail. Don't trust in governments to bring in the kingdom of God, he said. That's what he said. Don't trust them to do that. Don't trust any politician to do that. Don't trust any man or woman to do that. Don't trust any husband or wife or grandchild or child or sports star or celebrity or boss or scientist to do that. Don't trust possessions or achievements or accolades or anything or anyone created to do that or be the thing that brings in the kingdom of God, that satisfies our hearts and fixes our world. Like David, all human saviours fade away. There's only one who has proved his worth by overcoming death can satisfy our hearts and fix our world. Secondly, let's consider the incoming king's aspirations in verses 6 to 10. We turn from the father to the son. Verse 5 had told us, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Who is Adonijah? He is the fourth eldest of David's sons. Amnon, the firstborn, is dead. Absalom, the thirdborn, is dead. Kiliab, the secondborn, is not mentioned. So it's suspected that he died in childhood. Adonijah was fourth in line for the throne. Solomon was tenth in line. We're told in verse 6 that he was Absalom's brother. The fact that he's a good-looking young man, handsome young man, should remind you of Saul and Absalom and David's brother Eliab and the worldly way in which outward appearance and not godliness is seen to fit someone for leadership. Take the words of Absalom, I will be king. Three words, and think about them for a moment. These are the words of his pride. On the other hand, they may appear very reasonable, 
For after all, isn't Adonijah next in line? And hasn't his father's silence on the matter left it kind of awkwardly open for interpretation? But the end, on the other hand, note that Adonijah is following the worldly way of taking power, not God's way. This is nothing less than shameless self-promotion. This is nothing less than putting yourself forward. His words, I will be king, reflect nothing less than unashamed pride, reminiscent of something Satan himself may have said when he thought sought to dethrone God and rule the universe. Or Adam may have said it when he rejected God's rule and ate the fruit. I will be king. This the sin of pride, this sin of self-exaltation or of, of playing God is the mother of all sins. No law of God can be broken without one first to deciding, firstly deciding to ignore God as king and take that prerogative to rule upon yourself. Adonijah is an illustration of the sin that rejects God in our lives. Think on how reasonable it can appear, just like Adonijah's attempt to take the throne appears reasonable. Justice seems to be on his side. Precedence seems to be on his side. He even has the support of influential people to back him up. It all seems right. Seems right. And isn't that how we promote sin today? It all seems right. Some might think it's okay, I can commit adultery when I'm unhappily married to an angry man or an unaffectionate woman. It's okay to pursue a sinful lifestyle because it's my right to be happy and so on it goes. Sin is such a terrible thing, not because it's unpopular, quite the opposite. Sin often looks quite legitimate. The evil of sin is not so much in what is done, but in the right of, but the denial of God's right to rule us. Saying, God, I don't want you to rule me. I want to rule myself. To do your will, to follow your law, to do it your way, is to make yourself as God. And so Adonijah's rebellion began and we can note some aspects of it. Firstly, note his, his publicity campaign. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Imagine it, you're a citizen of Jerusalem and you're in your house, you hear the sound of 50 men in armour doing a double quick time march outside in the street. You and your neighbours run to the window and your doors then come the chariots, and then come the children lining the street for the parade, then come the horsemen like a bodyguard, and finally at the end of the, of the parade is David's son wearing a crown. The figure of rebellion walking brazenly down the main street, strutting his stuff with all the trappings of social acceptability and appointment as his publicity campaign. Secondly, note the endorsements that he gets. He's not the only one who thinks in a worldly way. And so he ejects God's ways. 
See, in verse 7, he confers with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. Joab was a disgraced general who probably wanted to retain a position of leadership in the military. Abiathar was a priest, but not the high priest, who was probably hoping for a promotion. These self-interested individuals were either driven by a pragmatic view of what they thought the nation needed or a baser motive of self-promotion. Either way, sin finds its happy supporters. You want to go out and sin? People will say, that's great, we'll applaud you. It's godliness in the ways of God that are seen by the world as old world and alien and criticised and abandoned. Then also notice the backhanded way in which Adonijah conducts himself. Notice who he leaves out of the loop and how incredibly secretive towards certain important people he becomes. We see this in verse 8. He doesn't tell Zadok the priest. He doesn't tell Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet. He doesn't tell David's mighty men. He doesn't get their support because they're supporting David. The high priest, the main prophet of the nation who speaks truth to kings nor the king's personal bodyguard. We see in verse 9 that everyone else is invited to the crowning banquet but not Solomon and not David's closest men. See two things here. See the way in which godliness is marginalised but see the secretive nature of sin. When we do it in the dark we don't tell our spouses. We don't tell our closest friends. You don't ring me up or the elders when you're about to sin and say, I've just decided I'm going to do this. Adonijah illustrates the nature of our self-enthroning hearts and shows us that we are rebels who reject God's king and we do it through the various tactics that he employed. We think in worldly ways which seem to legitimise our purpose. We brazenly employ open demonstrations of publicity to normalise our activity. We seek out like-minded people who support our agenda and empower us. We keep out the godly who are not part of our selfish agenda and secretively grow our sins. And so Adonijah's rebellion was underway. You can read ahead, you can see how it all transpired, but it won't be a surprise for you, to me, for you to hear me say that like Absalom's attempt to take the throne, it didn't work. Well, let's conclude this. To sum up and conclude, let's note how much Adonijah reminds us of the prodigal son with some slight differences. Adonijah could not wait for his father to die and what did the world now? The prodigal committed the greatest disrespect by not waiting for his father to die to receive his inheritance but demanded it before he died. The prodigal went off to be king of his own kingdom and found himself in ruin. 
His royal treasury run dry and faithful supporters abandoned him when the money ran out. He was reduced to poverty and shame. But when he decided to admit his sin and return to his father, we know that in the parable Jesus told that his father received him with open arms and gifts and a feast of celebration. How is that, you might ask? God does not receive us so willingly because our sins are so small and our rebellion against him a small thing to overcome. No, he's ready to receive us because the huge price that needs to be paid for our rebellion has been perfectly paid by Jesus. And his love for us is so great in providing full atonement for your rebellion and mine. And like Adonijah, you can either accept the king that God provides, the son of David, the one of his choosing, or you can choose to be your own king. And they're the only choices, aren't they? To fail to make a choice is to reject Jesus as your king as is choosing another apart from Jesus. And that will never do. See, a self-promoting, self-centred, self-appointed king from among the world of men who fail will never save us from our passive and active rebellion. We need a king from heaven. We need a king who is humble and selfless. And Jesus is that king He didn't act out of shameless self-promotion. He didn't do what he did out of pride. He didn't die for us to gain a name for himself, except the name that he was given because he did do God's will to the fullest. Paul says of him in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself all the way to death on the cross. He didn't push himself forward and say, I will be king. But he humbled himself to be the lowliest of the lowly and will save all who come to him and bow their knee to him and confess their rebellious hearts. Will you do that? Let's do that together. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we give you thanks this day that we have this recorded in your word, this man who said, I will be king. His presumption and pride we've seen in the text before us. But we are so much like him in our natural state We also have said to you, I will be king, king of my own life. Please forgive us for rebellion, for treason, for we're created to be under your rule and authority. We were formed that way, bearing your image but also answerable to you. And as we remember Satan's sin,
in Adam's sin. We thank you that the one you sent, he didn't say, I will be king out of pride and any other false motive, but simply because he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so we thank you that in Adonijah we see Jesus, but we see the opposite. We see the one who came to save us, who humbled himself all the way to the grave. And so we pledge submission to him and to his rule and ask you to deal with that rebellious heart. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.